0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Romans as we continue our sermon series, If. And so um, this section is Romans 7, 15 uh, through 24. Let's share in God's good word together. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary But I need something more. For I know the law, but still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. One little if can change anything. One little if can change everything. And as we look at Romans 8, the key scripture for us is, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That little two letters, if. If God is for us, then that changes everything, and that can change anything in your life, if God is for you. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And as a reminder, uh, last week, what Andy taught us is, is basically this. Your greatest regret won't be the things you did but wish you hadn't, your greatest regret will be the things you didn't do but wish you had. In our younger days, of course, we can be foolish and we can do things we think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But as we get older, certainly by the end of our lives, as we look back, um, we're still going to do foolish things. We're going to mess up and we just sort of begin to accept that about ourselves. But we can look back and go, oh, that opportunity, I missed it. That moment when I could have said, I love you or I forgive you or to be reconciled with someone before you don't see them again. Those are the kind of moments that we wish we had a do over. We wish that we could go back these times of regret where we had opportunities and we just let them pass. And so that was really the, the setup um, as we start to move through Romans chapter 8. But as is true in the Bible, uh, and it can throw us off a little bit, the chapters and verses aren't always really clear about where things start and end. In, in the scripture that we're looking at tonight, uh, it really, if you want to look at this more at home, it starts at chapter 7 verse 1, and it goes all the way through chapter 8 to verse 11. Now we're not going to cover all of those tonight, we're going to just kind of telescope into it. Uh, But just know if you really want to look at Paul's one long thought, one long argument, what he's really saying starts at seven one and it goes all the way through to 8.11 as one complete thought. And so what Paul says in chapter 7 is that our problem, our condition is something that we all know about. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. And that is that sin is evil power that enters into our life and brings the true self into slavery to its rule. And so we, we read together, there are things that we want to do, we simply can't pull them off by our own willpower. There are other things that we don't want to do, and we wind up doing them, and this is just the way it is. And for many of us, it's the same sort of thing over and over and over again, the same thing that we struggled with when we were 12 or 14 or 16. Um, if, if, if something doesn't change in our life, we're struggling with those same sorts of things in 26 or 36 or 46 or 86 And so what we find is that our struggle often remains fairly constant. And we just don't have the willpower or ability to take care of it on our own. We need something more. It simply is the case. Paul is saying this is the way life is without the power of God in your life. And and one of the things that the church has struggled with is, is we would love to say, well, you know, we're in and you're out. But that's not the way sin works. Uh, The church has struggled for years about this idea of dualism, where the good people do this and the bad people do that. But we know, and we open every service here, that that's not the case. What we open the service with each and every time is, good evening what? Saints, and then good evening sinners. Because we are both, all the time, redeemed by God's grace, yes, but still in need of a Savior. Always in need of God's saving grace. And so sin then distorts our best intentions and twists good to self-interest. So even when you're trying to do something good, if you're not careful about it, you'll have a photographer following you along or you'll take a selfie and go, look at the good I did, click. And it's about self-promotion and pride and look at me when you were trying to do something good in the first place. And, And any of you all who have followed politics at all know what this looks like. Right? that sometimes the politicians are more in the way at the food kitchen, taking the photographers and all that, than actually doing any help at the food kitchen. Does it make sense? And so even when you're trying to do something good, that can get twisted to self-interest and distorted. So there's not this really nice and clean, clear-cut, this is what good people do and that's what bad people do. Sin integrates every part of everyone's life, and, and you have to carefully and intentionally root it out. And this is what Paul is saying, that we need help. It's not dualism. This is the way sin works. And so in Romans 7, 14 forward, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. Nothing I can do about that. I do not understand my own actions, he writes. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody live there? Ever go on vacation with your family? We're going to be great. It's going to be fun. We're going to be super nice to each other. We've been in the car 12 hours. Quit touching her! I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's just out of control. The, the very things that you have in your mind about how this is going to go and how it's going to be so great, and then it just isn't. You've promised yourself maybe a hundred times you're, you're not going to lose it over this tiny issue uh, or, you know, the toilet paper goes this way or that way. It's no big deal. But, you know, whatever it is for you, there are certain things that happen in all of us. And Paul says that's what life is like. And you're not going to get over that just by hoping it so or willing it so or buckling down. That's not the way it works. And so Dallas Willard, uh, in my training under him in 2009, he said this. He said, Mark, and to the class, trying is dying. Will you say that with me? Trying is dying. What we need to understand in a Christian life is that willpower is not enough. We don't believe that we're super people who just happen to be stronger than everybody else. That we just simply have more moral courage. That's not what we believe at all. What we believe is that we need a savior and his name is Jesus. That's what we believe. That we need his power. We need his love. We need his character living in us so that we have power to live differently. So Paul goes on. He says, so now if I do, uh, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Now this is important. Friends, the law is good. And the church has struggled with this. There's a, a group of folks um, in, in, in the early Christian faith, and they're still around today, that basically said that the Old Testament was bad, that God was bad, and the new Jesus spirit people were great. Right? The Marcionites, that's what they said. And, and, and friends, that's not at all right. The, Paul is trying to correct that right here. He says, no, the law is good, friends. So the law is what? It's good. Right Now you'll remember that the law was given to the people of God After they had been enslaved under Egypt for 400 years, they needed law. They needed the boundaries. They needed to know where the ditches were. They needed to know where the fence lines were so they could live together, so they could live well. The law was to bring life and health and peace, the very things that Jesus ultimately brought to the world. And so you might think of it like this. If the law was personified and and the law saw Jesus on the cross conquer death, go to the tomb, and be resurrected, the law would be like... Yes, finally, it's happening. It's coming to earth in ways that I could never bring it. This is what I intended, but I just didn't have the power to do it. You see how, see how that works? The law is good, but without Christ's power, no one can live it out. So Paul writes, in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, in my own power. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so again, do we get this right? The law is what? Say it with me. Good. But the law is not enough. Is it good if you're a little overweight to lose weight? Yes. Are you probably going to just do it just because you want to? No. Probably not. Any of y'all started a diet and, and you gained two pounds immediately? You know, because you're thinking about food all the time. And that's that's the way that works out. The law is not enough. Willpower is not enough. We need something more. And what Paul is writing, particularly in chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, is that this is a natural human life apart from God. That's just what it looks like. This is natural human life apart from God. All right, will you say this with me? This is natural human life apart from God. And we need to understand this, that if you are struggling... Uh, with picket this addiction or, or that addiction or that issue that relationship this way of life And you're not inviting god into that. Just get used to it. It's not going to change uh, Carmen used to s- sing a song that said something like uh, If you're miserable get used to it because without jesus you done blew it. That's how he would say it Right, we have to have power greater than ourselves. That's why jesus is a savior friends If you don't need saving from something you don't need jesus Right? If you were absolutely perfect and your life was great and you didn't have any struggle, then why do you need a Savior? You wouldn't. So our faith is about needing a Savior and, and saying so. And so Paul finishes the argument like this in chapter 7. So I find it to be a law to the case. He's doing a play on words here. That when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. I do, but I see in my members, in my flesh, in my body, another law at war with the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body, in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's trying to do better, trying to do better, trying to do better. Maybe this is you, and you just can't. Who's going to save me? And so, again, he is laying out for us that this is the miserable sinner way of life. And it's not going to get better without God. It's not. It's not. And, and, and the church has really struggled with this to talk about sin uh, as, as if, well, we just want everybody to kind of get along. But, but it's really cruel to try to tell someone that their life's going to turn around without Jesus. Because it's only the power over sin, only the power over death, only the power of the Spirit of the living God, the resurrected God that's going to change your life. Nothing short of that. Not for long, not for more than a day or two. You know, you can, you can gut it out for a little bit, but not for life. So he, he has shown very clearly something that we all know. And then he writes this in 25. He, he turns the point and he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's giving thanks in all this because there is hope. Who's going to rescue us? Jesus is going to rescue us. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. That's the case. Now, what's really important is when I was younger and I read flesh, I thought like sexiness, right? Like fleshiness. That's not what Paul means at all. And, and so we, we need to kind of pull it out of, out of that the way many of us in the West would read it. And we need to understand that in the Greek, flesh simply means natural abilities. In our natural abilities, in our own strength, in our own want to, in, in our smarts, uh, in our people skills, in our emotional quotient, in our intelligence quotient, all of that is our natural abilities. right? And, and there are people here in, in this very room that have a lot of natural abilities. And that can get you so far. But if you get to be my age, you'll know that it only gets you so far. There are certain things in life that that just doesn't cut it. You need more, uh, particularly when it comes with some of the most pressing and important things in your life, uh, like your family. So a number of years ago, many of you may have seen the little movie Finding Nemo. Uh, It is a story about a little fish that gets lost and the love of a father that seeks out and saves Uh, His son, that's what he's trying to do, he's trying to find his son. In the middle of the story, uh, the father, Marlon, is in a conversation with a a beautiful little blue fish named Dory, who has short-term memory loss, and uh, played by Ellen, and um, they have a conversation. And and I think uh, it's instructive, uh, what she says to him. Let's take a look. Now, that's where we get in trouble with this passage. As we read it and we say, yeah, but, yeah, but this happened. This still happened. I, I know Jesus and this bad stuff still happens. And, and Dory's right. You, you can't live your life so that nothing ever happens to you because then nothing ever happens to you, right? I mean, life is going to happen, but we're not alone, friends, And notice that Marlon, when we get in this place where he's just banging against the side of the whale, he's just in his own effort, in his own power, in his own flesh, as Paul would write it, he cannot get to a son. He cannot accomplish the goal. And he's trying. He means well. He's doing everything he can. There's nothing more important to the father than to go and find the son. But in his own power, his own flesh, his own natural ability, he cannot do it. And so Paul writes the good news in chapter 8. Perhaps the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation, no death, no destruction for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the rest of the world, yes. But in Christ Jesus, no. We have a different kind of help. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who is raised from the dead has set you free from the law of sin and death. You no longer have to die. You no longer have to live that same old sinful life. You now have power if you will receive it, if you will invite it into your life to live differently to say no to yourself, to say no to the world, and to say yes to Jesus, whatever you want. And so it it boils down to this. The Spirit of Jesus has set you free from sin and death. So the very things that before you gave your life to Christ that you simply could never do, now you have power to do. When you ask the Holy Spirit to live in you, and you say, God, not in my power, but in your power. I, I can't forgive that person, but you can forgive that person through me. So I need your power to live in me so that I can forgive them. I need to get over this hurt. I need to get over this grief. I need to get over this pain. I need to get over this anger. I need to get past this, but I can't do it. But God of the universe, you can. Jesus, who conquered all sin and all death, you can. And I'm asking you to live bigger in me. So that's not really me doing it. It's you, the spirit of life. The spirit of love. The spirit of grace, live in me. So Paul explains this. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law meant well. It was good. It was right. It simply couldn't bring it to pass. So God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us, to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He killed sin so that we could get over it, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk now, not according to the flesh, not according to our normal abilities, but according to what? The spirit. Now, this is important because oftentimes when I grew up in school, I don't know if this is true for you or still today, but most of my education, most of what I was taught was that it was about my natural abilities and how to grow my natural abilities. And the only thing that changed that for me was my teaching from my parents that said, you know what? You don't have to know everything in the world, but there are some things God wants you to know, and there are other things that the Lord may not want you to know. So before you study for your exam, why don't you just pray and ask the Lord to bring to mind whatever it is that He wants you to learn. And so I did, and that became a daily part of my life. That was particularly instructive uh, in college and in my master's work. Because certainly if you've ever done a master's degree, you understand that there are weeks that there's more reading to do than you can possibly get done, particularly if you work. They say, we want you to read chapters 20 through 35 uh, on, you know, Christian history from, uh, you know, 1300 to 1750. And you're like, yeah, Uh, and, and, you know, be with my family and work. And so I would pray, Lord, uh, I'm about to take an exam. And I know you want me to be a pastor. And I know that you want me um, you know, to pass. Show me what to study. And the Lord would. The Spirit uh, would guide me to the, the pieces that I needed to know. And I was able to know them. And I was able to stay on scholarship and able to graduate. Um, largely by the Spirit living in me. Not by my own bootstraps. Not just for me gutting it out. But by listening to what God had for me and then responding to that. It was was Christ living in me. For those who live according to the flesh, to our own natural abilities, they set their minds on their own natural abilities, the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and what? Peace. right? So this is how it works. So if you want everything to be about you, it can be, but that's going to lead to death because you're going to die. If you want everything to be about Jesus and the Spirit, you can do that too, and that's going to bring you life forever and peace. That's what they yield. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh, on our own natural abilities, is hostile to God. Now, this is what we need to understand. If you think that it's all about you and your own natural abilities, then you don't need God. You don't need a Savior. That's what he's saying. Because if your life is all about what you can do, then your life is about all you can do, and you don't bring Jesus into the equation. And so it's hostile towards Christ, because you don't have any reason for him or need for him. It does not submit to God's law, because you're not listening to God. And indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. If you are all about your own ability and, and your status in the world, then you're not even thinking about God, much less pleasing him. So to focus on yourself is to ignore God. Now, again, I know that I'm going really hard against the culture right now. Because what the culture says is, well, how do you feel about it? Is that working for you? Do you like that? And friends, to focus on ourself is to ignore God, and God does not like being ignored. If you read any part of the Bible anywhere, you will see very clearly that God does not like being ignored. And Jesus calls us to do two things, neither of which is to focus on ourself. Jesus either calls us to himself to focus on him, or he sends us out into the world. But notice, in both of those scenarios, the focus is either on Jesus on the cross and what he's done for us, or sending us out in Matthew 28 to the world. In either case, we have to rip our focus off of ourselves and either to Jesus or to the world. But it's never just on us. And just the tragedy of our world today is that almost everybody else tells us to look at yourself. How's it working for you? And what that leaves us is miserable. It's Romans chapter 7, miserable. Not able to do the very things we want to do and doing the very things that bring us grief. So Paul writes this. He says, but you, friends, never forget this. You are not flesh. You're no longer in your natural abilities. You now are in the Spirit because of what Jesus has done for you. Since the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. In you, lives in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see, to follow Christ, to be a Christian, to be a little Christ, to do the things that Christ did, requires that that very spirit lives in you. That's what allows you to follow him. You're not going to be able to follow Jesus on your own. Otherwise, we wouldn't call him Savior. He's saving us and empowering us to live for him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life Because of righteousness. And righteousness is something we're going to look at in just a little bit more. So here's the point. We can live as if Christ lives in us because he does. He lives in you. So you have power that may be untapped. You have power to live differently. You have power to do things that you couldn't do before. And you have power to say no to things that used to have control of you. Because Christ is doing it on your behalf, living through you. And so what does this look like? It looks like us saying, Jesus, help me. I can't do this. But you can. And and make no mistake, friends. When it comes to righteousness, it's way more than doing nothing wrong. It's not self-righteousness like, oh, look at me, I don't do things wrong. That's not worth anything. Righteousness is more than doing nothing wrong. It's doing something right. Will you say that with me? Righteousness is more than doing nothing wrong. It's doing something right. It's for the transformation of the world. And if you're a Twitter person, that would be a great Twitter to throw out tonight. Because we we mistake righteousness. We don't don't think of righteousness, right? We're like, well, I don't want to be self-righteous. I don't want to be righteous. Yes, we do. We want to be righteous because we want to be people who not only don't do bad stuff, we want to be people who change the world in love and in grace and forgiveness and in power and in beauty and to do things that only God could do and allow him to do it through us that we become the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And so we come to the conclusion of the argument tonight. In verse 11, he says, if, that's your key word, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's a huge if, if the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also, to you also, through his spirit that dwells in you. So here's the thing. If you invite the Holy Spirit tonight to come and live in you, that same spirit that when Jesus was dead in the tomb raised him up to heaven, If you invite that spirit, that power, that grace, that new life in you, then you live too. But if you don't, you don't. And that's your choice. If you say, when you come to church, you go to your prayer time, uh, or you're visiting with your family, uh, or you do like most people do, how are you doing? And you go, I'm great. Then that's what you got. And nothing more. There's no power in that. Now, if you're doing great, that's awesome. I'm really happy for you, and it's okay to do great. But no one's great all the time. No, no one can be great at every moment of your life. Life has ups and downs. And, and so we need to be honest about that and say we need a Savior. We need Christ. Because, friends, Christian assurance, that's really what we're talking about, is to know that you know that you're know that you saved, that, that you're being alive in Christ. Christian assurance is not self-assurance. It's not, well, I'm good because my circumstances are good. It's not that I'm great uh, because, you know, my family happens to be healthy at the moment my kids are making A's. That's that's not assurance at all. All that can go away in a heartbeat, just like that. So Christian assurance is in Christ, not in self, not in self at all. So we can live as if we are who God says we are. Well, who does God say that we are? God says we're his children, that we're heirs of the kingdom, that we're more than conquerors, that we are the light of the world. And notice that we're not talking about how we feel. right? You can be an heir of Christ, you can be an advocate for Christ in the middle of a very difficult time. We're not talking about our feelings. We're talking about acting in faith into our future. We're acting as if God is in control and that God is good because God is. We're acting as if we have the power of the risen Jesus living in us and that's good because we do. We do and now we live into that. That's what faith looks like. We can live as if God is with us because God is. That's what the the great gift of Emmanuel is, God with us. So we claim as Christians that God is everywhere. So we can live as if we are never alone. We are not alone. God says that he will never leave us or forsake us. We can act as if this is the very definition of faith, that if God is in us and God is alive, then we can do things that we would never dare do without him. We can no longer be afraid even of death, because Christ, who never dies, lives within us. And so while our bodies, our outward flesh, our natural abilities may die, and they do for all of us, if Christ lives in us, then we live on. And we have a great future and a hope with a new body and a new life that lives forever with everyone else who has ever had Christ live in them. And this changes the world, friends. Because in that little story uh, with Nemo uh, and his dad searching for him, if you've seen the movie, you know that ultimately it ends out pretty well, that there was something greater at work. There was something coming together uh, through this silly little dory fish with short-term memory loss and a cool surfing turtle dude and, and all these other things. They all come together for this ending. That's kind of nice, isn't it? But you'll notice that it wasn't all about Marlin. Now, he had a part to play, and you have a part to play. In God's great orchestrated world, you have a very important pl- part to play in your life and in the life of the world and the transformation of the world. But it's not all about you, but it does require you, it requires your participation. It requires you to invite Christ to live in you so that the world can change. St. Augustine used to say it like this God loves each of us as if they were the only one of us. Isn't that great? That just as Marlon loves Nemo, just as you would love your only child, God loves you as if you were the only one. But, of course, that's true for all of us. For all seven billion of us, God is that good, God is that great, that he can love each and every one of us. it changes the world. Albert Einstein put it like this. He said, there are only two ways to live your life. One as if nothing is a miracle. And the other as if everything is that you see God's handiwork in and around and through the world. There's an old story that some of you may have heard me uh, tell before, but I think it's important as we look at living as if. That's your action step, that we begin to live as if Christ is with us. The story's about an old monastery that had fallen on hard times, and as the leader agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot to ask the town rabbi, if by some miracle he would have a word for him. So when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit to the rabbi, he had knocked on his door and had been brought in. They commiserated together, and, and the rabbi simply said, Well, abbot, I know how it is. He said, The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi, they wept together. They commiserated together. And then they read parts of the Torah and they quietly spoke of the deep things of faith. And the time came when the abbot had to leave and they embraced each other. Uh, And these words were said, "'It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years,' the abbot said, "'but I have still failed my purpose here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice that you can give me, "'that would help save my dying order?' And the rabbi simply responded, No, I'm sorry. I have no advice to give. The only thing that I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. And he turned to go. And when the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? And the abbot responded, Well, he couldn't help. We just wept and read the scriptures together. And the only thing he did say as I was leaving, was something cryptic that the Messiah is one of us. Now, I don't know what he meant. And in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the old rabbi's words, that the Messiah is one of us. Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, well, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Well, yes, if he meant anyone, he had to mean the abbot, Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. Well, but on the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. I mean, certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light, and certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But, you know, come to think of it, uh, even though he is a thorn in people's sides when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right, often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. I mean, Philip is, is so passive, he's a, a real nobody. but Then almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there right when you need him, the right place at the right time. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, suppose he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. Suppose the Messiah lives in me. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as the old monks contemplated in this manner, they began to treat each other with extraordinary respect. On the off chance that one of them actually might be the Messiah. And on the off off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah. And they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And it so happened that the people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny little lawn and to wander along some of the paths and even now and then to go to the dilapidated chapel and to meditate. And as they did, without even being conscious of it, they started to begin to sense the aura of the extraordinary respect and love that began to surround these five old monks. That it seemed to just radiate, radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the space and there was something strangely attractive even compelling about it and hardly knowing why they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic and to play and to pray and and others began to bring their friends to show them this very special holy place and their friends brought their friends and then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk to the old monks and after a while one asked if he could join their order and they did and then another and then another So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, simply by living as if. Gandhi said it like this, live as if you were to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were to live forever. Amen? Amen.